Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship our triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Acts 4, 24, and 25. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Our Lord, you are God. And all the universe is crafted by your hand from the supernovas in the heavens to soft ball-sized peony flowers in bloom to sea slugs in the Puget Sound. You have created it all. And so we raise our voice and say with one accord, you are an amazing creator. And on this day, when we celebrate fathers, we thank you that you are not only our creator, our Lord, our God, but you are our father. We praise you for the work of your son who brought about our adoption and the gift of your spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we worship you now, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with the Holy Spirit, world without end, and amen. 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 Please be seated. So recently I've been trying to instill in my kids something they've picked up from their two-year-old cousin, Noah, that when they get hurt with a knee scratched, toe squished, an eye blackened, to respond strong as oak, ideally with a uh, chest thump, strong as oak. An oak tree is so strong because of often what you cannot see its root system, and they are needy roots at that. Did you know that a mature oak tree can drink up to much as 50 gallons of water per day? To be strong as oak requires being needy as oak. And this gives an example of biblical strength and biblical need. Think of David in the Bible. What are the characteristics of this man? Well, if you're reading 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel, you can say he is strong, resolute, courageous. He's fighting lions as a teenager, chopping off giants' heads, routing armies, leading his mighty men. David is as strong as oak. And then you read his psalms, his prayers. And the giant slayer is crying night and day. He's overwhelmed. He's complaining. He's needy. And you can condescendingly say, David, be strong as oak. And then you realize that that is exactly what David is doing. In his most needy psalms, he is drawing strength. If David is an oak tree, then the psalms are his root system. He is drinking deeply, drawing nourishment, finding support in the Lord and in his scriptures. 
David prays in Psalm 86, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. David is as strong as an oak because of his needy roots. But notice that a sign of a healthy tree is that the roots remain under the surface. If everyone can see your roots, then you are not a healthy tree. The hurricane has blown you over. But some Christians, in an attempt to be authentic or real or to get attention, pull up and show off their root system. Look how needy I am. And then they wonder why they feel weak and so wilty. Of course, you have needs and worries, temptations and trials, frustrations and heartaches. And this is not a call to stiff upper lipping it. Rather, to bring your needs to the one who knows perfectly how incredibly needy you actually are and will strengthen and establish and bless you. And bless you, like in Psalm 1 promises, like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its seasons, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And so, be rooted in Christ. Drink daily from his word. And then, Christian, you will be as strong as oak. Let's meditate on these things as we prepare our hearts to confess our sins by singing along the streams of Babylon in sadness on page 178 and 179. And amen. And as you are able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. Acts 3.19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Our Father, you are the source of our life and the sustainer of our life. Apart from your work, we are both physically and spiritually dead. Simply, we need you. And yet we confess that we try to ignore this need and rely on self-help. This is as futile as growing a tree in thin air. Or when we recognize this impossibility, we turn to draw strength from different relationships or accomplishments. But a spouse or girlfriend or Facebook or a promotion can never satisfy or strengthen as you can. And so when the droughts or tempests come in life, we easily wilt or are quickly uprooted. We repent of this false strength. Or in a false kind of humility, we deny the real strength that you do give us, and we focus merely on our neediness. Like a tree of only roots, we are stunted with little fruit and fail to grow up into your blessings for us and others. And we turn to you in the name of Jesus in repentance that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And we now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. And amen.
Please rise for the assurance of our Father's forgiveness. Acts 10, 43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So while an oak tree or King David does provide an example of biblical strength and need, the perfect example is in Jesus, the son. And in his greatest trial and his greatest need, he was rooted in his father. And on that cross, because of that great need, he stood strong so that way your sins would be forgiven. So if you have confessed your sins, looking to him, believing in him, based on that gospel, your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. These are the words of God. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Our God and Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your blessing on our community, on this church, on our businesses, on our life together. And we lift it all up to you now, and we pray that you would sanctify it even more, that it would reflect even more the love that you share as Father, Son, and Spirit that you have poured out in our hearts. And so we ask for this more and more in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. The Trinity is the source and archetype of true Christian community. So what we seek to do as a people, as a community, as a church, as a neighborhood, is to reflect that glory. That's what has happened in our salvation, and it's what we are seeking to work out, live out in our lives. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 3. John wrote his letter so that those he was writing to would share that fellowship with them. We're writing so that you might share with us the fellowship that we have with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 2 that we have been made alive together in Christ. We've been made alive together in Christ. We've been raised together to the heavenly places in Christ. And so the resulting community is a glorious part of the riches of his grace. Part of what God is bestowing upon us when he saves us from our sins is Christian community. That's what he's doing. He's not only putting us back together on the inside, he's putting us back together on the outside. He's forgiving our sins and he's taking away the brokenness of sin, the curse of sin in this world. So it's one of the things we love about being here. It's one of the things that we celebrate. It's the, one of the reasons why many of you are here. But we want our fellowship, we want our community to be shaped by the Bible, by God's word, and not whatever we or our culture assumes it to be. So we want our community to be shaped by what God says community is and not what we thought it was. So community is, is a buzzword. 
community is something that you hear a lot of. People um, are drawn to community, friendship, hospitality, and there are all kinds of communities. And so it's not enough just to say community or even just put an adjective on it, Christian community, and then just do whatever it was that you thought community was. Everything in this world actually has to die in Christ and then be raised again. Every good thing, everything in this world has to die in Christ and be raised again. And when it does that, God is in the process of taking away all the gunk. God is in the process of taking away the sin, taking away our misconceptions, taking away our idols. And when it rises again with Christ, it comes back to us in, a, in an actual, in a shape that we can actually use, in a shape that's actually good for us. So there's certain things that we love and we like and we enjoy, and, and Christ says, yeah, there's something good there, but it's, it's got a bunch of stuff stuck to it. You have misconceptions around it. Uh, parenting is wonderful, glorious, but there's misconceptions you've tied to it, or marriage is a huge blessing, but you think marriage is going to do this for you. It's, it's not. Actually, you've got a misconception there. Your culture, your heart, sin is attached to it, and so it has to die. It has to be surrendered to Jesus. It has to die in him. You have to let go of it. And then it has to be raised in Jesus. And then Jesus gives it back to you. He says, here, get married like this. Have a family like this. Build a community like this. And so that's what we want to look at for a few minutes this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that the Thessalonians already have brotherly love such that he has no need to write to them about it. And in some ways, that's kind of how I feel about preaching a sermon to y'all about community. Right? I, you, don't really have, you don't really need me to preach you a sermon about community because I bet you we could just make a long list of all the things you just did this week for one another. You are known for brotherly love. You helped somebody move. You probably watched somebody's kids. You probably picked something up for someone at Costco. I know you did. Uh, you, right? You, you, you did, you do these things. This is what brotherly love is. This is what brotherly love is. And you've been doing it. You mowed somebody's lawn. You watched somebody's pet. Um, you, you helped them with something. You gave them a ride. You carpooled. This is what brotherly love is. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, I, I really don't, you don't really have need for me to tell you to love each other. You are already doing it. You do not need that I write unto you this for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Again, notice just the fact that they're taught of God. How did they learn to love one another? From God. They know God. They know the Father through the Son. They know that love, and that love just comes spilling out. They've been taught by God himself. Verse 9. Apparently, Thessalonica had become something of a center of Christian community, and they had become examples in Macedonia, Achaia, and in every place. So Paul actually noted that at the beginning of this letter. In chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, they had become examples everywhere. Everybody had heard about the Thessalonians. They had a Christian community. It was great. Everybody had heard about it. They had also been granted the ability to share that brotherly love with many outside their immediate community toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. You see that in verse 10. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. So this community was vibrant. They loved one another, and that love overflowed. And it overflowed such that it was famous. People had heard about the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. They had heard about probably churches in Thessalonica. And they had been ministered to 
by the Christians. All of Macedonia had been touched by that love. Again, you could stop for a minute and say, there's something really similar here in what God has blessed us with. Have anybody outside of Moscow heard about a Bible reading challenge? Well, actually thousands have, right? Tens of thousands have. Um, has anybody ever heard of Moscow, Idaho? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was talking to somebody this week we interviewed and they said, oh, you're from Idaho. Have you ever heard of Moscow? Yeah, yeah I live there, right? Um, maybe somebody's read a book from Moscow, right? Th that, that same thing is at work here. That same thing is at work in our midst where people have heard about what God is doing here. Uh, people are being blessed by what God is doing here. People travel here from time to time to participate in it and people move here. They, you know, there's, there's Logos School, they're wanting to learn from maybe the teacher training, there's New St. Andrews College, people want to send their kids here, and so on. A, a similar thing could be said that Paul writes here about uh, the Thessalonian Christians. Uh, their example of brotherly love has, uh, it's, it's spread. People have heard about it, and people have been blessed by it directly. Paul urges them to increase more and more. And we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, verse 10. And, and I want you all to hear that as the big piece. I wanna, we're going to unpack a couple of the things that Paul reminds the Thessalonians of in the midst of this. But the overarching exhortation is do so more and more. Keep doing that. Keep doing so more and more. But it's striking that Paul says keep doing so more and more and says, and pursue a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands just as we commanded you. So in the context of this three cheers for Christian community, three cheers for brotherly love, keep doing what you're doing more and more, next year even more than this year, remember what we commanded you, pursue a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands. And so what I want to do is I just want to unpack those three exhortations with you this morning. But notice why he says to remember these three things. He says that they need to remember these things for the sake of their witness to those who are outside the church and so that no one will be in need. Verse 12, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without and that you may lack nothing that your witness may be faithful to those who are outside and so that you may lack nothing, so that no one will be in need. So in the process of reminding them, cheering them on, good job, keep it up. Remember, pursue quiet lives, mind your own business, work with your own hands. Why? This is for the sake of your testimony. This is for the sake of evangelism. This is for the sake of your hospitality and so that no one will lack. And so what I want to do is just walk through those three things with you. Many of you with vans lar uh, full, of lar uh, full of kids, large vans full of kids, wonder what Paul could have possibly meant by a quiet life. Right? Um, yeah, okay, I'm pursuing that when they're all gone or something like that. Right? Then it'll be quiet. Paul, that's a nice thought and all, but um, uh, yeah, good luck. But I don't think Paul is talking about word count or decibel level so much as he's talking about joy count and peace level. I don't think Paul's talking so much about word count 
and decibel level so much as he's talking about joy count and peace level. I mean, think about this. The reason I, 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 I know this actually is because in the first instance, you might be tempted to say, Paul, how quiet was your life? I mean, let's read Acts, you know, read Acts again. And it's like, Paul, uh, that's a quiet life. Riots, mobs, shipwreck, you're getting, you're, you're evading arrest out the window in a basket. You're, you're getting stoned, you're getting imprisoned, there's earthquakes, a quiet life. But I think Paul would actually look back in your face and he would say, yes. That's what I was doing the whole time. Now, now what? How could that be a quiet life? Well, the, the fundamental thing, again, is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. The, fundal th the fundamental thing is what's going on here, and, and how, are you, how are you writing it? How are you holding it together? Think of um, the, what, what Paul says, uh, sorry, Peter says to Christian wives dealing with disobedient husbands in 1 Peter 3. He says, cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter's not saying that wives may not go talk to their disobedient husbands. He's not saying that they can't bring concerns to them. He's, he's not saying that they, they can't discuss things, but he's giving them tactics for winning over their husbands or winning their husbands to greater faithfulness. And he says, the thing that you need to do is draw nearer to the Lord. You need to rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord. That's the most winsome thing you can do. When you rest in God, when you trust in God, when you draw nearer to God, what you're doing is you're making room for your husband to join you. That's the sort of thing that wins him over. Not only that, but God sees that. It's precious in his sight and he wants to bless it. And so whatever's going on day to day, whether it's a period of calm or a period of storm, whether it's a shipwreck or whether it's um, a, a quieter summertime, Paul says, yes, pursue the quiet life. What is the quiet life? The quiet life is resting in Christ. As no matter what's happening, you're trusting in him. You're leaning on him. You're going to him. You're turning to him. In the context of marriage, fellowship can only really grow as each spouse draws closer to Christ. In the context of marriage, if you want to grow that community, you want to grow that fellowship, you want to grow that intimacy, the first thing you need to do is actually get closer to Christ. That's actually how you get closer to your wife or get closer to your husband is you actually get closer to Christ because there's no Christian community outside of Christ, right? And so the closer you are to Christ, the nearer you are in proximity to the ones you need to be near. And so... Peter says this to wives of a gentle and quiet spirit, rest in Christ, draw near to Christ so that your husband will draw near to Christ with you, so that there will be room for him to draw near to you and him. The point here is that the goal of all Christian community is winning others closer to Christ, not to ourselves or our own agendas. The goal of all Christian community is actually drawing others closer to Christ. Now, as it happens, as they draw closer to Christ, they will frequently be closer to you, your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbors. As they are drawing closer, closer to Christ, they, you'll also find that you're closer frequently, not always, 
But the point is to, that we want to win others closer to Christ, not to ourselves and not to our own agendas. This is Christian love. This is Christian love. It's actually drawing others closer to Christ and closer to his mission, closer to his agenda. If someone else comes closer to Christ, they will have necessarily come closer to others who are also in Christ, but this is a secondary blessing. It's not the primary goal. We're not trying to get closer to other people just by, just by itself. We're trying to get closer to Christ, and in Christ, we want his blessing on all our relationships. So a quiet spirit and a quiet life are characterized by a recognition of the presence and agenda of God and resting in him and in his plans for our community. That's a quiet life. A quiet life is continually recognizing that Christ is here. Christ is here. That's a quiet life. Which doesn't necessarily mean that you're not getting arrested or you're not in a shipwreck. A quiet life is recognizing that Christ is present. That's your quietness. Christ is your quietness. Why? Because he's your peace. Who is your peace? Christ is your peace. And if Christ is your peace, then when Christ is there, you're at peace. You have a quiet heart, and therefore you have a quiet life, regardless of what's going on up here, regardless of what's going on in the back seat or what's going on around you. You have a quiet life because Christ is there with you. So a quiet life and a quiet spirit are characterized by recognizing the presence and agenda of God and resting in him and in his plans. What's his plan for your day? What was his, what was his plan for your week? What is his plan for your life? The verb form for the same word, quiet, the verb form for that same word is used to describe keeping Sabbath in one place in the Gospels, Luke 23, 56. They kept Sabbath they were quiet. A quiet life is a life driven by Christian Sabbath. A quiet life is a life driven by Christian Sabbath, which is why we rest on the first day of the week. Why we're here on Sunday. That's why we, we weren't here yesterday. We're here today. The finished work of Christ grounds all our labors. The finished work of Christ grounds everything from here on out for the rest of the week. We begin resting here. We come here, we sit down, we feast at his table, we hear his word proclaimed, we hear the gospel proclaimed, and we rest in it. And we mark our day, and we say, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. This is the day that he finished his work and accomplished his entire mission that secured the salvation of the world that secured my salvation, that secured the kingdom of God coming and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. It was finished. It was finished when he said it was finished. It was finished when he rose from the dead. And so we come here, we gather here, we sit down and we rest. And that's how we begin. That's what drives us. And so when you get up tomorrow morning, what's driving you is fundamentally gratitude that it's done. The assignments that you have in front of you this week, whether it's work, vocation, whether it's difficult relationships, whether it's sin you have to deal with, whatever it is, you go to it with the security that it's done. Christ's already figured it out. He's already finished it. Now you have to work it out, but what you're working out is what he finished. What you're, what you're tackling, he finished. That's a quiet life. The quiet life is the one that says, whoa, this is a doozy. This is a doozy, 
but I have Christ and Christ took care of all of it. Here we go. Are you with me? All right, here we go. And you face it. You go to it. The finished work of Christ grounds all our labors. We work because God has already accepted our works. It's that wonderful verse in Ecclesiastes 9. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. God has already accepted you. You're not trying to get God to like you. You are accepted in him. You are in his beloved. He rejoices over you. So eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. He's already accepted you. This is the glory of justification by faith alone. He said, but I didn't do anything. Right. God did it. Christ did it for you. And so you go about your works knowing that they have already been accepted by faith. And so we work for Christ, not as man pleasers. Again, this is part of a quiet life. Paul reiterates this a number of times, particularly to servants. Servants work as unto Christ, not as unto man. Not trying to please man, but trying to please God. This is also a center of a quiet life. Who are you working for? Who are you, who are you, who are you pleasing? If you're constantly trying to please the people around you, you are not going to have a quiet life. If you're, you're doing sort of a, a nose count or just facial expressions and you're like, is this a good one? Is this not a good one? Did I, should I have done that or not have done that? And you're going to have, if you have you know, sort of uh, justification uh, by vote, is terrible. Right? Just, you know, do you think I'm okay? Do you think I'm okay? And you're looking around trying to see if everybody's okay with you. Right? What a, you know, what a terrible way to live. Don't work as, as seeking to please man. Seek the, pl the pleasure of God. Seek the joy of God. Rest in his pleasure that's already in you. A quiet life insists that true community is only in and through Christ. Fundamentally, right? Christ is here. That's the biggest deal. Right? You have people over for dinner. The biggest deal is Christ is there. Right? Not that the, the Joneses or the Fredericks or whoever is over with you. Yeah, that's great. Glad you came along. Jesus is here. That's the most fundamental thing about Christian community, Christian hospitality, Christian evangelism. Jesus is here. Christ is here. And so whatever it is that we're doing, we're living a quiet life, resting in him, enjoying him, grateful to him. A quiet life leaves space and time for Christ to be the center because he is. That's a quiet life. Christ is here. Christ is the center. Elsewhere, Paul instructs Timothy that the churches should pray for civil magistrates, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, 1 Timothy 2. And notice that Paul immediately once again connects this to all men being saved and coming to a knowledge of the truth. That's what he says. Pray for civil magistrates, that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life, so that all men may come, be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. A quiet life is central to seeing the gospel go forth. Why? Because a quiet life is all about recognizing the presence of Christ. How will you win people to something that you're not actually practicing? Or what are we winning them to? We're winning them to Christ. We want them to know Christ. And so everywhere you go, Christ is with you. That's the most evangelistic thing you can do. Living like Christ is there because he is, right? That's, that's evangelism. That's hospitality, that's Christian community, living as though Christ is there, right there in your midst. This is the most evangelistic thing you can do. A couple of last thoughts on quiet life. Uh, Proverbs 17, one, better is a dry morsel 
with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Right. Better a dry morsel, better a bowl of cereal. Better a bowl of cereal with peace. Better a bowl of cereal with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and fellowship than a feast with striving, with bickering, with fighting, right? A fair bit of striving is rooted in an idolatry of community or friendship, demanding of people or of a graven image in your head what they were never designed by God to give. We have to have a feast. We have to have lots of people over. We have to have somebody over every week. We have to do it. We have to do it. And you're burned out and nobody likes each other. But, but at least we had a feast. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, that, was, that was, whatever it was, it wasn't a Christian feast. Because a Christian feast is full of the joy of the Lord, full of peace in God. Better bowls of cereal, better bowls of mush and joy in the Lord. And everybody smiling and loving each other in Jesus. Then steak and wine and bickering. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. Better a handful with quietness. There's that word again. Than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. We want our community to be marked by a quiet and confident exuberance in Christ, not a toiling and grasping after the wind of human intimacy or Christian community or friendship or whatever it is. No, do we want friendship? Yes. Do we want hospitality? Yes. Do we want Christian community? Absolutely, of course. Of course we do. But what we want it to be marked by is a quietness in Christ. It's, it's a joy in Christ. It's a fulfillment in Christ. It's saying, in Christ, I have all things. In Christ, I have friendship. In Christ, I have hospitality. In Christ, I have a home. In Christ, I have family. In Christ, I have everything I need. You want in on this? That's what you're doing. You're saying, you, you want in on this. We can share that together. Right? Christ is here. Christ is present. And so rather than a toiling of, I need you to be my friend, <laughs> I, I, need, I need you to come over and eat dinner with me again. I, I need, will you, please, we have to do something. The hunted expressions of those pursued by Christian hospitality. Rest in Christ. As you love one another, do so more and more while pursuing a quiet life. Secondly, mind your own business. For some reason, this particular exhortation doesn't make it into most of the Christian community books I've read, but I think it should be in one of the early chapters, Mind Your Own Business. This is how to build Christian community. Right? Christian community, mind your own business. And right, it's not there. Why isn't it there? Well, it's, it doesn't sound very sexy. It doesn't sound very friendly. It doesn't sound very nice. I mean, Paul, I mean wait, Paul, we're, we're, we're trying to be nice to each other. You know, love your neighbor as yourself and all that. Paul says, right, and mind your own business. It might not sound very hospitable, friendly, or evangelistic, but Paul explicitly says here that we must mind our own business in order that we may walk in an orderly and decent way towards those who don't know Jesus. That's what he says. So that you will have a faithful witness to those who are outside. Proverbs says something similar. 
Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Proverbs 25, 17. Don't go over to your neighbor's house too much. Don't go over there too much. Remember when my in-laws first moved to town, my mother-in-law just loved us being just, you know, a few miles down the road, and it was always just, you could just come over anytime, come over anytime. And I love that, I love that about her. And I also would sometimes respond and say, yes, but we want you to still love us. So maybe not this time, right? But maybe the next one, right? Why? Why? Because I, I wanted that to be protected. I, I wanted to defend that fellowship, that joy that I know we shared. And so I, I didn't want at any point that it would be like, I wish the grandkids would go home. Right? Also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Ecclesiastes 7, 21, 22. Don't listen too closely to what other people are talking about. Don't. It's not good for community. It's not good for Christian love. Now, I'm not saying, you know, just the law of the law. I mean, if you hear somebody that's, you know, man, if I just had a nickel, I could get this, and you have a nickel in your pocket. Not, you know, pastor said, mind your own business. Give them the nickel. Right? No, I, I, I get it. Sometimes you hear something, and you can help them. Sometimes you, you hear, oh, you're looking for directions. Hey, I, I, know, the, I know where you're looking for. I, I'm not saying that. The warning, though, is being particularly taking to heart what people say, maybe particularly about you, about your family. Don't take it to heart. Love covers a multitude of sins. Minding your own business is not a charge to be rude or self-centered or thoughtless, but it is a charge to focus on the things that God has given you to do and not to add your own gas to your neighbor's grease fire. Proverbs 26, 17 says something about grabbing Getting into other people's business is like grabbing a stray dog by the ear. Or don't get into other people's problems. Focus on the things God has given you to do. Minding your own business, in the, in the English idiom, sometimes it kind of sounds like you're sort of like tucked away, you're kind of being rude. But it means focus on the assignments that God has given you. That's the idea. Mind your own business means mind your assignments. Mind your tasks. Keep a mind, keep attention, don't be easily distracted by other things when you, when you have an assignment from the Lord. That's what it means. Mind your own business. It doesn't mean be rude. It doesn't mean be self-centered or thoughtless towards other people around you. There's, of course, ways of being rude and thoughtless uh, and self-centered, egotistical. That's not what Paul's saying. He's just saying, keep in mind what God has assigned to you. Keep in mind the business that God has assigned to you. Also be aware that what sometimes passes for community is actually a form of laziness. It's sometimes easier to be worried about other people's problems than facing your own. Right? Sometimes it's easier to get caught up in someone else's trouble and then suddenly you don't have to worry about your marriage, your children, the problems at your work. You can chase something else over here and, and it sort of feels like you're doing something worthwhile. But what you're actually doing is avoiding the business that God has assigned you. And again, there's a balancing act here. Don't, don't be the Levite on the, on the road 
who says, sorry, I've got to stay pure, and there's a beat-up Jew on the side of the road. No. If somebody, if the Lord sometimes will drop something right on your lap. And when he does that, you cheerfully go to it. Now it's your business. I'm driving along, and someone's broken down on the side of the road. Do not leave this room saying, pastor said, mind your own business. That's not what I said. When I said, mind your own business, but sometimes the Lord drops things on your lap. Remember that God has put people in your own home for you to love, feed, serve, help, and bless. He's put people there for you. That's your business. That's your assignment from him. Here, love this man. Here, love this woman. Love these little people. Love this father, this mother, this aunt, this uncle, this roommate. These people, love them, serve them. This is your business. This is your assignment. Do it well. Do it well. Serve these people, love these people, feed these people, help these people, bless these people. Here, these are the people I want you to take to heaven with you. Take these people to heaven with you. That's your job. Okay, go. Right, that, that's, that's heavy. That's full. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul says to Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own house, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is in the context of Paul telling Timothy how to care for widows. Right? The first line of defense is the family, your household. And, and you don't want to be acting in such a way that you're creating functional widows and orphans in your own family. Well, it's, you know, it's such a sad state of affairs that so many, I mean, it's a sort of a, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's known. Somebody says so-and-so is a missionary kid or a pastor's kid. Oh, right? And you, you sort of, you sort of expect that it's trouble, right? Trouble. Why? Because, because so many missionaries and pastors have neglected their own children, their own families in the name of the mission of God, in the name of helping orphans and widows and doing what? Functionally creating orphans and widows. You're not helping anyone. That's not helping. That's not building Christian community. You're creating just as many problems as you think you're solving. That's not building Christian community. Hospitality and friendship should be an overflow of the fellowship you have in Christ. So practice hospitality and friendship beginning in your own home with your roommates, with your husband, with your wife, with your children. Practice hospitality and friendship there. Learn to share a table together with joy. Love it. Enjoy it with Jesus there in your presence. Then invite other people to join you as God is blessing that. Be diligent in loving your people so that there's no lack in your home or anywhere else. This is what Paul says. And none of this justifies being a bad neighbor or shutting your heart to a brother in need when you have the means to help. 1 John 3, 17. I'm not saying when you go out to pick up the newspaper that you make sure you don't make eye contact with your neighbors. Right? No, no, no. Be a good neighbor. Love your neighbor. Be friendly. Be kind. Be hospitable. But mind your own business. Remember the business that God's assigned you Finally, work with your own hands. Reading between the lines, the Thessalonians were so good at brotherly love that they attracted freeloaders and busybodies. 
We can see this in the letters that he wrote to the Thessalonians. Uh, in this letter, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds them earlier in his letter of his example of labor and toil. He says, I want to remind you how I was in your midst. He says, laboring night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you, 1 Thessalonians 2.9. So he mentions it in passing here in this letter. He says, just remember how I was with you and the kind of community we were building. I was working night and day to support myself so that I wouldn't be a burden to any of you. So he just mentions it in passing. And then here, you know, he mentions here, working with your own hands in our text. By the time Paul wrote his second letter to the Thessalonians, though, he needed to be even more explicit. He writes this in 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Paul says Christians should not keep company with people like that. 2 Thessalonians 3.14. So by the time he writes the second letter, he, he'd already seen it developing or something they needed to be watching out for in his first letter. And he says, now in the second letter, I hear that it, it's kind of happening. There's a bunch of people kind of glomming on, and they're not working. They're, they're not providing for their own needs. They're not working hard. Don't be friends with them. Don't keep company with them. Likewise, Paul warns Timothy that young widows left to themselves often learn to be idle, going about house to house, becoming gossips and busybodies. 1 Timothy 5.13. And no doubt, some of them did so in the name of building Christian community, right? Why are you going house to house? We're building Christian community, right? How, I mean, we just want to be involved in people's lives, you know, revolving door and all that. We, you know, we're just, we're just always in their lives because why? Because we're building Christian community. I mean, you know, didn't, didn't the early Christians in Acts have all things in common, breaking bread from house to house, Acts 2.46? Well, yes, yes, they did, but that was a temporary stopgap measure addressing the unexpected Pentecost vacation extensions, right? You remember, remember the Pentecost vacation extensions, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit came and everybody that had been there on a short vacation to Jerusalem for the feast suddenly said, whoa, this is brand new. Before we go home, we better figure this out. We need to study this a little bit more so we can take it home faithfully. And meanwhile, you had a bunch of Jews already preparing to sell their stuff and leave because Jesus said in a few years, the armies of Rome were going to come and completely obliterate Jerusalem. So you had a, a significantly unique situation where a bunch of out-of-town guests decided to stick around for a few more weeks and a bunch of residents are getting ready to sell. So yes, they, it, was, it was an unusually uh, sharing moment as they were trying to make sure that everybody was taken care of and they had their hands full really fast. Remember the widows and they're starting to argue and they have to get the deacons on it and all of this and Facebook didn't even exist yet. Right? I mean, it was, it was, it was difficult. It was challenging, but it wasn't the norm. The standing gospel command is clear, and he says it in 2 Thessalonians 3.12. Now those who are busybodies, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, there's that quietness word again. So we command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the norm. Work and eat. Work, pay your own bills, take care of yourself. That's the standing gospel command. You work hard, just as we did, provide for yourself. And in Ephesians 4.28, when Paul is addressing thieves, he says, learn to work with your own hands, pay your own bills, and then maybe you'll be in a position to help somebody who is in legitimate need. That's what you're aiming for. That's your goal, and that's what we want in Christian community. 
the, con the contrast here is between busy bodies and working with your own hands. Busy bodies and working with your own hands. And Paul says here, this is what I've been commanding you from the get-go. This is how you build Christian community. You work hard, focus on the things that God has given you, and provide for those that God's assigned you to provide for. Jesus is the bread of life for the life of the world. And the corollary to this is that you are not, and neither am I. And no other human being is. And this is good news. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is our life. Not me, not you, not your friendship, not your marriage, not your kids. These are gifts, these are blessings, these are, these are things that come with Christ, that come in Christ, but Jesus is our life. Jesus is the one who died and rose again to take away our sins. Jesus is the one who died for your sin. He's the one who took your sin, your guilt, your shame away when he died for you. And no one else on this planet did that. No one else on this planet can do that. You see, when, when we have a hole in our soul, this gaping hole that sin creates and guilt and shame creates, we are hungry for it to be put back together. We're hungry for community. We're hungry to be accepted. We're hungry to be loved. We're hungry for friendship. Yes, and the, the central friendship, the central love, the central community that that hole aches for is for Jesus himself. It's for Christ himself. That's what you ache for. But when you try to grasp or grab or toil or strive for something else, you say, I need, I need this, I need this. What you end up doing is destroying the very thing that you want, destroying the very thing that you think you need. No, Jesus is our life, and he ministers his life to the world as every part does its share, Ephesians 4.16. So we're part of the body of Christ, and every part does its share. So we do our parts. Whatever the Lord has assigned to you, you do that. You do it with all your might as to the Lord, and you let him bless it, and you let him minister his life to the world. And, and sometimes that's going to mean that you happen to have a business and you're helping somebody through your business work. Sometimes it'll be because you had your neighbors over for dinner. Sometimes it will be because you helped somebody out in need. Sometimes it will be because you're just praying with your family. Sometimes it will be because you're, you're teaching in a Christian school. You're doing your part, doing the best before the Lord to honor him and take care of the things that he's assigned to you. And in the context of that, the Lord Jesus is working out his salvation. He's the one building his community, and it's way bigger and more complicated and more crazy than any one of us even imagine. You know, you just think about the, the, the ants just doing their thing. You know, look at the ants. Just, how is that organized? They're doing their thing. Everyone, they don't even have a master. They're just doing, right? And that's what we're called to do, right? You do your thing. Serve the Lord, love Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the source of all Christian community. Rest in him. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart because God has already accepted you. This is, this is the foundation of it all. Has God already accepted you? Are you accepted in him? Right, this is the offer of the gospel. Be accepted in him, in Jesus. He knows all of it. He knows all of it. And he says, come, be forgiven. Come, come, be washed, be clean. All the aching, all, all the sorrow, all the heartbreak, come. I can heal that. That's the offer of the gospel. This means minding the business that God has assigned to you, building your house, loving your wife, serving your husband, encouraging and training your kids, honoring your father and mother, being a blessing to your roommates, 
practicing hospitality and looking for ways to serve and encourage others to do the same. This is brotherly love. And again, this is something that the Lord has poured out on us. What a blessing to be here. What a blessing to be part of this. Do so more and more. Do so more and more. Do so more and more this week, next month, next year. And do so as you live a quiet life. Remembering Jesus is here. Jesus is with you. Right? He is here. He is your quiet. He is your peace. Then you have that peace to share. Mind your business. Keep at it. Keep at the work that God has assigned to you. And work hard with your hands so that you'll have something to share. This is the shape of Christian community. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you have sent your son to invite us back into your fellowship. Thank you that by the blood of Jesus, our sins are taken away and we are welcomed fully into your family, into your community. Father, we want that community to continue to grow in our midst. So we surrender everything to you. We surrender our aspirations, our goals, our agendas to you, to your goals, to your mission, to your agendas, so that we might walk with you in the joy and peace of the Lord. Father, continue to give this to us. One of the primary ways to form a Christian community is right here at the Lord's communion table. And that is because Jesus deals with his people at the table. Think back to the first supper with Jesus and his 12 disciples. This is a church community in miniature. And there was, even then, bad communion among the disciples. In the Gospel of Luke, right after Jesus has washed all of their feet, passed out the bread and the wine, the disciples start squabbling about who is the greatest among them. Jesus had just finished pointing to the bread and to the wine, my life for yours, and the disciples take this opportunity, this opening in the conversation, to step on toes, to try to one-up each other, and generally attempt to split their community. And based on the disciples' conduct, this meal does not seem like one to be celebrated as often as God's people are gathered together. But their sin was one of the very reasons we must continue to return to this table. Jesus deals with his people at his table. Like the disciples, we are filled with jealousy, boast, boasting, self-advancement, hypocrisy, cheating, all community-destroying sin. And Jesus was crucified for your sin and the sins of the Christians sitting next to you. The Lord has forgiven you just like he's forgiven them. You have communion with your Lord and God, and here are bread and wine for you. And here are his bread and wine for them. Are there squabbles and rivals and cheating and brothers out of fellowship in this church community? You bet there are. And in all of that, remember how God has dealt with you very graciously so you know how to deal with his people. And that's why it is essential to repent and to forgive and to come and have communion. For here, Jesus is dealing with his people. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
So as we reflect on Pastor Toby's sermon and, and really the, the great community, Christian community that we do have here, and that includes the helping with the uh, child care and the Costco pickup runs and yard work and, and really just the great community that we have here, it is right to thank God and to remember how it has become great. And I was reminded of G.K. Chesterton's quote about Rome. He said that men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. So it's, it's important for us uh, to remember that we don't, you don't get a great community without the hard work of love, without the hard work of loving Christ who is at the center of this community and the hard work of loving one another. So the charge is this, as you go out this week, uh, to love Christ, to love one another. And that might mean, probably will, to deal with sin, to confess sin, to repent of sin, and doing all of that in order to make this, to continue to have this be a great Christian community. Now receive with believing hearts the benediction of our God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.